This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, March 25th, 2016, episode 21, A New Year's Chimera. Hello, and welcome back to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and Happy New Year! I suppose I owe you regular listeners a bit of an explanation for the recent hiatus, Um, and if you're a first-time listener, uh, you can disregard this. And if you are Tom, who left a comment on the website, uh, rest assured that the polite but firm chiding you offered uh, has been taken to heart. So, where has the show been? There are a couple of factors that produced the delay in getting this, the first episode of 2016, out to you. Um, One of these is that I had an idea back around Christmas time for a fun, special episode that I thought would be a great one to drop as a kind of New Year's celebration. This idea for a fun little lark turned out to require uh, an insane amount of work (laughs) that kept expanding at each stage. Uh, And so weekend after weekend passed where I went in thinking I'd finally be able to get it done. uh, And instead, progress just got slower and slower. But I have finally finished it. And I'll explain more about the uh, laborious premise of today's episode in a bit. The other thing that slowed down production is that at long last, I defended my doctoral dissertation successfully at the end of February. Uh, And getting ready for that was, let's say, a little bit of a distraction from intensive podcast production. Though, as it happens, uh, the podcast itself ultimately played a fairly substantial role in the dissertation project. Um, That wasn't part of why I started this show, but I have to say, in in the end, it has served me well, um, and I'm very proud of it. Um, And now, let's see if it can help get me a job. (laughs) So, hey, if Any of you listeners out there are hiring or have uh, postdoc opportunities in creative writing, new media, or early English literature, I'm available. And now on to today's episode. I'm calling this my New Year's Chimera. You might initially object that it's not really New Year's anymore, uh, but you would be wrong, as I will attempt to prove in the little lesson that will follow today's text. Uh, You might also ask, what's a chimera? Uh, Well, the chimera was a monster of Greek mythology who was made up of the parts of several different animals, um, canonically a lion, a goat, and a serpent. And this monster was ultimately slain by the hero Bellerophon. Uh, And while I'm here, I'll just throw a little plug in for an underappreciated classic uh, of 70s postmodernism, which is John Barth's book, Chimera, which... Uh, consists of three novellas, uh, one of which is a brilliant retelling of the Bellerophon tale, uh, portraying the hero as a guy deeply insecure about not being as great or as famous as Perseus. Um, And it ends with a virtuoso passage uh, in which Bellerophon, uh, spoiler alert, I guess, um, but he ends up transformed not into a constellation like Perseus was, but into the very text of his own myth, the text you're reading in the book. Uh, Like I said, classic 70s postmodernism. Anyway, back to chimeras. Uh, By metaphorical extension, a chimera can be 
any kind of hybrid composed of different parts. It's the original mashup. My favorite example of chimera used in this sense is in the biological medical context, uh, where a chimera is an individual whose body includes cells with two or more distinct sets of DNA, not within a single cell, but different cells with different DNA. Uh, this is a pretty fascinating phenomenon that raises lots of interesting philosophical questions and can lead to some really thorny legal complications. Uh, it's beyond the scope of this show, but I'd encourage anyone curious about this to Google the case of um, Lydia Fairchild and read up on that. It's, it's an interesting story. Anyway, the big idea I had this past Christmas was to do a special episode in which I employed, uh, speaking of postmodernism, um, a version of the Dadaist cut-up technique, uh, where I'd go into the texts featured in previous episodes and clip out words, phrases, and sentences, and then reassemble them all into a brand new story made entirely out of those snippets. Uh, I thought it would be a novel way of doing a kind of retrospective on what we've covered on the show so far. Well, three months later, <laughs> and this mammoth task is finally done. Uh, so why did it take so long? Well, first, uh, I had to reread all the text excerpts from our 20 episodes so far uh, and identify and collect good-sounding phrases, things that would be useful in a story. Um, and when I was done with this, I had accumulated about 10,000 words worth of potentially useful phrases. Um, and in order to be able to start to, you know, quote unquote, write with these phrases, uh, I then had to go through and sort them all into uh, narrative and even grammatical categories, um, such as uh, statements describing characters, actions performed by characters, expressions of time, dialogue tags, uh, et cetera, et cetera. All of this I finished, this categorization process, I finished around mid-February. And then I had to actually compose the narrative out of these pieces, which took a couple more weeks. And then for the last two weeks, um, I've been having to cut all the actual sound clips out of the original recordings and then do the editing to put them all together into one coherent performance. And that's what you're going to hear today. This is our Medieval Death Trip 2015 Chimera. It consists solely of clips from the medieval texts uh, that I've read in the previous 20 episodes, uh, with honestly no cheating. Um, all 20 episodes are represented here in over 200 separate clips uh, that range from single words to multiple sentences. Something I've been a bit insecure about um, doing this show, my inability to do much uh, in the way of distinctive character voices, um, has at least in this case proved to be a huge advantage um, since it allows me to mix and match the clips quite freely. Indeed, I'm sort of simultaneously pleased and disappointed that the whole thing cuts together surprisingly smoothly. Uh, I'd envisioned it as a bit more of an obvious Frankenstein's monster with audible stitches in it. Um, sort of like when profanity is badly and hilariously overdubbed for a network TV broadcast of a movie. Hey, watch your mother, father, mouth. Don't you tell me what to do, you little piece of shoe. Hey, that's my aunt, you mother, father. 
Say what? The both of you uh, can grab one on my book. You mother, father, Chinese dentist. You! Why'd you have to go do that? As it is, I fear that the piece just sounds awkwardly written uh, rather than highlighting the dense mosaic of individual sounds that it really is. Um, It makes the bits where the seams do show uh, sound more like errors than an intended aesthetic effect. Uh, But you know what? I'm not going to take another month to polish this anymore. So here it is. Medieval Death Trip dropped into a blender and reconstituted. It does contain some slightly rude humor, so be forewarned if that's not your thing. But really, what is the main reason for repurposing and recontextualizing uh, existing texts if it's not to make childish jokes? Uh, So, without further ado, here is our New Year's Chimera. When words blossom forth, the mind is barren. The heart within bears that which flowery tongues are eager to conceal. Now, whereas virtue shines clearer by contrast with vice, it may be permitted to put in writing what I know to have happened nine years ago. We trust that no one will take offense that we have given a somewhat different account from that of a certain person who has before us ably written concerning this direful visitation. On the Saturday before Palm Sunday, which in that year fell on the 4th of the Ides of April, there took place in Lothian an event most marvelous. A certain brother, overcome by illness, had reached his last days. He was formerly vigorous, now he languishes. He blossomed forth, now he withers. He gave commands, now he is a slave. He came to the castle, richly gowned, with a fair company, but little he deemed whom he would find so near. There was a certain man, belonging to the frontier lands of Wales, an inhabitant of the county of Chester, whose life I know not how to describe otherwise than by means of an observation by St. Augustine, who said that he who lived well could not die amiss. Such beasts as he are known in every land. He who neglects his own soul despises or vilifies that of another. And so this vain man, by name Richard, A man elevated more by lineage than from uprightness turned to those following him and said, My greatest recreation is fickleness. The stability of a sphere lies in its perpetual motion. I suppress those with clear vision. I foster degenerates. I spurn those who are good. I wish either to make a mock at the monk or so to frighten him as to hinder him from carrying out his plan of devotion. Emboldened by such words, his companions kept crying out continually, My Lord, my Lord, let it be. But the aforesaid man of God, conscious of the poison of the crooked serpent, declined or hesitated to take the medicine they had brought. And so the monk went to bed. A little time after, when it grew towards nightfall, the forementioned Richard delayed for a brief while and, taking two lords of his fellowship with him, came again to the room. What they sought, they found. 
He became as a mad dog in his hatred and malice, but by a kind of fatality, attended with extreme fatuity on his part, he made straight for the monk as he lay there, and with a rush he jumped upon him and frightened him dreadfully as he slept. In that very moment, therefore, the aforesaid sick man was affected by a flow of water so continuous that it never ceased running for the rest of that day and the whole of the following night, so that it rendered it impossible for even the boldest among the young men to effect an entrance. Turning south at the end of the chancel, it blackened all the right side of the image of the glorious virgin over the altar, and did to death a certain cleric who was kneeling in prayer at the right end of the altar. Documents of extreme antiquity and of the greatest value were in one moment of a night which proved to us of blackest hue by a most shocking misfortune, lost and utterly destroyed. Throughout all England there was not such another nadir known or heard of, he drains out, yet there was absolutely no bad smell perceptible. All the rest who were present were amazed on beholding what had happened. Whereat, their craft being discovered, they grew red with confusion and pale with fear and stiff with terror, swearing sometimes, by the love of God, and at other times, by God's head. They began to understand that he who lay there was certainly a person of extraordinary merit. From this spark, a torchlight gleams on high. From this seed is produced a rich harvest. From this root a branching tree grows tall. From this little spring a stream of water overflows. This Richard did at one moment applaud and smilingly pretend to be glad, and anon by his pale face showed that he was afraid. Then straightway the servants, recovering themselves, ran to him and with difficulty turned him out of the chapter house. And after much chasing of him on the part of the monks hither and thither, they had hard work to shut him out of the cloister. Small was the wonder that he was glad to go. And he said, Let us go hence, because nothing prosperous happens to us, but all things incline to the contrary. What more? But although magnets wished to administer medical care to the ailing man, it is said that he answered, Very quickly shall I die for reason of my dread. His companions immediately replied, No, fair friend, no. The monk preferred to die rather than to be moved from his bed. So intolerable was the burden of his infirmity. For when he realized that he was destined for death, he totally committed himself to the Lord and promised that a terrible revenge hung over that man. And as he asked, so it came to pass, whose words became true pledges of future events, as the issue of this affair afterwards proved and the following circumstances will show. And so the brother died. The forementioned Richard departed to his own house, and there cohabited with a certain harlot of Morley, whom he had before foolishly known with the affection of filthy lust. Of this the whole city of Hereford bear witness. It is a certain thing, and within the knowledge of all, that those men flourish who, with the weapons of their tongues, know how to misrepresent righteous causes and to justify unrighteous ones. Next day, when the bell was tolling for the dead man, Richard, stripped naked and darker than lead, took the lady in his arms very tenderly and kissed her. The lady took him to task right sweetly in this fashion. Husband, said she, and fair sweet friend, tell me, for hope of grace, what you do with your clothing. 
Wife, said he, I go naked as a beast. Husband, replied the lady to him, I love you better than all the world. What would you have, for it is yours already? Wife, made answer the Lord, it is your task to stir up this fire of glowing desire, for you reddens the treacherous torch of Mars. Your care and your effort will not be unrewarded. As he was entreating her to act thus wickedly, the lady said, Keep it covered up until divine service is finished. Would that my hand could be idle. If no other law than mine were directing me, I might wish to abandon the task of my file. I know well how this will turn out. The swelling subsided with extraordinary quickness. He marveled that he felt no exertion. Therefore, it pleased him to make known by sure signs that he was displeased thereat. But, struck with a womanly fear, for a while she did not dare to approach nearer. Therefore she prayed and required him more urgently, with tender looks and speech, till he was overborne. She scarce had finished speaking when a cold shiver thrilled her inmost marrow. A pallor passed over her face. Consciousness left her, and like one dead she slipped and fell to the earth. Her body consequently presented a hideous appearance to the beholder. Nature furnishes the hidden workings of the soul. External things give manifestations of the mind. After a while, the woman, recovering consciousness, rose and burst out weeping, partly because of her distress and partly by reason of her exceeding fear. The lady's lips were loosed, and she told her tale. Open your ears, said she, to the words of my mouth, my dearly beloved husband. I saw, with eyes that had good reason to shed tears, a huge cloud, blacker than coal. The city was stirred with a strange excitement. The streets were crowded with people making disturbance. Had you been there, you might have seen some of them running off entirely naked, others with nothing upon them save a pair of breeches, others in their shirts and drawers. And of all of them, there were very few, perhaps not one, who was so fortunate as to be able to dress entirely. In many places also, the lightning and thunder were extraordinary, so that the whole ground seemed to echo against this frightful noise, and so hastened on this greatest of misfortunes that could possibly befall us. The air became thick and dark, and by a single stroke of lightning much damage was caused all at once. Not only men were terrified and cried aloud, but even some domestic animals, horses for certain. The fire waxed stronger and stronger, the rays of light gleaming and flashing upwards. In some places houses were burnt, or thrown down, and demons were heard, vomiting forth torrents of flame on every side through all the windows. And after a short time, a shout went up from the vociferous crowd and suddenly men were being massacred on all sides without mercy. They most shockingly fell a prey to the fury of the flames, leaving behind them their horses, their arms, their clothes, and all the baggage which they possessed. Within the town, the abbey courtyard, the cemeteries, and the monastery church, the dead bodies lay thick and dense on the ground like animals. What more? A most dreadful misfortune befell me. On seeing most of them half-naked, I attempted to regain my chamber, and they surrounded me as I fled, and they seized me. And then this wonder happened, namely, that a flash of lightning entered a window behind them, and passing between them, killed two domestics who were standing in their presence. I, for my part, cannot believe that this happened accidentally. But by the will of him, without whom neither the leaf of a tree floats down to the earth, nor a sparrow falls to the ground. The promise of divine assistance moved me. Still in my night clothes, I awoke my companions. When they heard the noise, they were beyond measure terrified by the outcry. For fear and trembling, 
terror and apprehension seized them when they heard the noise of horses and the riders calling out for them, saying, Get up, get up, rise from your beds and come out, ye traitors. And then they harried and burnt and slew all the people whom they might reach. Shocking to relate, some had their limbs broken. The rest died. And having now recovered from my fit, with tears inexhaustible, I deservedly pour forth these lamentations. The whole character of the sky foretells for you hardship by which for all your care you cannot profit. And so, agitated as well by the revelation of hidden things as by the dreadful message, she kept calling upon everybody with dreadful screams, barefoot and naked, holding a bundle of twigs. Immediately, with torn hair and clapping of hands, she ran from one to another, weeping and wailing through the streets like a madwoman. Christ, looking down from on high upon her grief, was mercifully zealous to alleviate it. She departed this life on the second weekday following. Being apprehensive of his life, this Richard fell down at the knees of some priest, humbly begged for mercy and absolution of his sins, and made to beat himself most severely. And so, by that confession of the mouth and sincere penitence of the heart, we believe that he obtained pardon of the Lord. Behold, the aforesaid Richard took the habit in this place from the abbot. He was worthy of the love of all through the honesty of his life and the sobriety and gentleness of his ways. For he was always truly just, to the best of his ability, as far as regards his dealings, both towards God and man. But this fact, I think, ought to be mentioned, that whoever believes in fate or dreams will always live suspicious and unquiet, and thus will always remain foolish. I took particular pains to investigate the facts of the case. Hence, I have inserted into this work the details which I had gathered from various sources upon this head. Such mysteries as these deserve to be shrewdly investigated at leisure and to be gravely considered. So that was our New Year's Chimera. I hope you got some amusement out of it, uh, but don't expect one every year. I imagine it's going to be quite some time before I'm ready to do that again. And so what's all this about New Year's, you say? Didn't we start the New Year nearly three months ago? Uh, well, that all depends on how you reckon the year. For us, the year begins on January 1st, but it wasn't always thus. Uh, and of course, cross-culturally, it still isn't thus today, depending on where or who you are. Uh, so the new year I'm celebrating this episode, or at least the one I'm going to say I'm celebrating, is one of several medieval candidates for New Year's Days, uh, and that would be March 25th. Uh, my guide to most of the information that follows is a nice little chapter on medieval chronology by uh, R. Dean Ware, uh, from the book Medieval Studies and Introduction, uh, edited by James M. Powell. Uh, this is a topic I find simultaneously deeply interesting and also headache-inducing. The differences and diversity in the methods for determining dates is fascinating and cool, 
actually having to convert a particular date into the modern system can be a major pain in the neck. The calendar is one of those systems that we often just take for granted and easily imagine has just always been there. Um, at most, we might think of adding a day in February for leap year as some kind of novel invention that someone had to impose at some point, um, something like daylight savings time. Um, but otherwise, the calendar feels timeless and stable. Uh, but that is a mistaken impression. The conventional Western calendar we use today has its roots in the ancient Roman calendar. The beginnings of this calendar are lost somewhere in the mists of history, uh, tied into the legends of the founding of Rome. This calendar was originally only 10 months long and started with the month of uh, Martius or M March uh, and ending in December with a block of unassigned winter days falling between the two. At some point later on, this wintertime block was divided into the additional months of January and February. The next set of reforms to this calendar are solidly historical, as opposed to mythical or legendary, uh, and these were made by Julius Caesar, with some fine-tuning from the Emperor Augustus uh, in the first century BCE. These reforms introduced the basic leap year and formalized a calendar uh, called the Julian calendar that in terms of the lengths and distribution of the months, is the one we have today. The next big reform, and the one you're most likely to probably have heard referenced before, uh, is that made by Pope Gregory VIII in 1582, who modified the calculation of leap years from being uh, every year divisible by four to excluding years that would be leap years but are also exactly divisible by 100 unless they're exactly divisible by 400, in which case they turn back into leap years. And if that gives you just a little twinge above your eyeballs, we haven't even gotten to the real headache-inducing part. Uh, anyway, the Gregorian calendar is the modern Western calendar. And because of its reforms, the Julian calendar, uh, which is still used in the Eastern Orthodox Church for calculating the dates of religious feasts, uh, the unadjusted Julian calendar now lags behind the Gregorian calendar by 13 days, which really testifies to how good the Julian calendar was. Um, it's gotten out of sync with the solar year, uh, as you'd measure it by solstices and equinoxes, um, gotten out of sync by only about two weeks in over 2,000 years. You know, that's not too bad. I've owned digital watches that lost time way faster than that. Of course, since the Gregorian calendar was instituted in 1582, uh, that means it wasn't the calendar of the Middle Ages. Um, and this fact should also remind us that the Gregory of this Gregorian is a different Gregory than the one behind Gregorian chant. Uh, that would be Gregory the Great, who lived about a thousand years before Gregory VIII though I'll confess that I had these two Gregorians conflated in my head for quite a long time. Anyway, most of our authors were working with the Julian calendar, um, but that's not the only difference between their dating systems and ours. As I mentioned at the start, there have been several different fashions for when to start the new year. 
Uh, Ware identifies five different starting dates for the year used by various medieval authorities. Uh, and this is just focusing on the Christian calendar. I mean, there are even more methods once you start including you know, Islamic and Jewish calendars. But two of the Christian start dates for the year derive from old Roman usage. Uh, and one of these was January 1st, which was the start of the civil year in the Julian calendar. Uh, and the second was September 1st, which marked the start of the Roman fiscal year. Interestingly, even though uh, throughout the Middle Ages, January 1st was still commonly called New Year's Day, sort of keeping its Roman holiday name, January 1st was the date least commonly used to start counting a new year in most of the medieval period. The other three dates all have roots in the church. Uh, these were Christmas, December 25th, uh, Easter, which has a variable date, uh, and the Feast of the Annunciation, March 25th, also called Lady Day. Easter has a lot of aesthetic appeal. Uh, it's a great symbol of rebirth, after all, and what better way to mark a new beginning? Um, but Easter posed serious, practical problems. It's not great to have a new year that starts on a different and rather obscurely calculated day each time. Uh, and it also means that different years would have different total numbers of days, depending on where Easter fell at any given time. Also, uh, if you've studied the works of the Venerable Bede, to name just one medieval writer obsessed with this problem, you'll know that there were competing methods for calculating Easter in the early Middle Ages. Uh, and so this, too, remained quite a controversial point. Christmas performs somewhat better. It has the same built-in birth symbolism while having the advantage of a fixed date. Uh, it's also not far off from the traditional Roman January 1st starting point. Uh, and so Christmas was the second most popular medieval New Year's date, um, being beaten out especially towards the later Middle Ages, only by March 25th, which remained the starting date for the legal year in England all the way up until 1752. So, happy medieval new year, everybody. This is just one factor in the headache-inducing part of the story of medieval chronology. Uh, say you're reading a manuscript, and the chronicler says that a particular battle happened on the Ides of February in 1236. Uh, you have to figure out if this means February 15th, 1236, or if the chronicler is reckoning years from March 25th, in which case we would reckon the actual date of this battle as February 15th, 2037. And that's assuming the chronicler gives you a year anno domini, as it were, uh, which is not necessarily going to be the case. Um, because not only were there competing fashions for what date to start the year on, there were competing fashions for what year to start counting years from. Counting from the year of the birth of Christ, or at least one notion of what that year would have been, uh, this was an approach invented by Dionysius Exiguus in the 6th century, um, and even then didn't really get much traction until Bede chose to use it in his hugely influential ecclesiastical history of the English people in the 8th century. Uh, but some historians still used the Roman system, counting years from the founding of Rome, which would be uh, 753 BC in the Anno Domini system, and some counted from the 
Anno Mundi, the year of the world, that is, counting forward from the alleged date of the creation of the world itself, a number that also varied quite a bit, depending on whose biblical calculations were being used to set that timeline. And there were even more ways of picking a year one, especially if you consider Islamic and other Eastern sources as well. And then if sorting those schemes out isn't enough of a headache, many historians, instead of using any of these universal dating schemes, borrowed again from the Romans, uh, who often gave dates according to who was consul um, in the year specified. And so these medieval historians preferred to give years according to how long a particular king or other ruling figure had been in power. This, too, could vary depending on what you pick to mark the start of the reign of that king, uh, which could be the moment of uh, accession to power, or it could be the date of the actual coronation, and there could be considerable gaps between those two events, and then sometimes even other factors in the reign uh, would be picked as the significant starting moment. Beyond that, some count the year of the accession or coronation or what have you as year one of the reign, whereas others actually start counting uh, with year one as the following year, which is just another reason why you can't always tell in what year something happened, uh, because the historians aren't always transparent about what system out of the manifold systems available that they're actually using. That's the thing that can make working with raw manuscript text frustrating and headache-causing. And just like we take the basic calendar for granted, we often take the work of the editors and translators for granted uh, when they you know, invisibly convert for us all these disparate dating systems into our modern standard one uh, and make the reading of these texts all that much simpler. However, uh, we do retain vestiges of these systems. Uh, we certainly still employ a version of the regnal year uh, when we talk about the Elizabethan era or the Victorian or Edwardian eras, uh, you know, locating ourselves in time based on the ruling monarch. Um, and this can you know, muddy up our chronologies a bit. Uh, certainly when I think Victorian, uh, my mind goes straight to the 1880s and 90s. Uh, somehow in my head, Victorian London uh, is always the London of Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper. Uh, and so I keep surprising myself with the fact that Dickens' A Christmas Carol uh, came out before the American Civil War, uh, because my mind wants to place Victorian stuff later into the century. Uh, and of course, what we've really done nowadays is to replace the regnal system for dividing up time with one that seems more naturalistic and even kind of weirdly metric, which is to carve time up into decades. But even this, of course, is a grand illusion uh, that leaves us doing things like epitomizing the 60s with images of flower children and psychedelic rock, when those images would have been quite alien to someone living in 1963. If anything, the idea of a decade having a common culture uh, is even more artificial and arbitrary than talking about the culture under a particular monarch, because at least there might be a genuine cause-and-effect relationship between the monarch's policies and the cultural norms on the street. Uh, but nothing inherently causes a cultural shift when 1989 turns into 1990, uh, other than our own belief in the notion that a new decade defines a new cultural period. 
And so you wind up with countless magazine articles explaining things like how the 80s didn't really start until 1983 and stuff like that. Um, you know, but that's a huge separate topic, uh, perhaps for another time. Uh, this has been an episode with enough blurred boundaries already, so uh, let's wrap things up. We ended our pre-Christmas episode with a riddle, way back in those ancient days of 2015, uh, and I must at long last provide the answer. The riddle was from the Claret Riddles, and it said, Here stands a tree with branches twelve. On every branch there are four nests. In every nest are seven birds, and each bird has its proper name. My tree will never cease to bear. World without end, it will be there. If all our calendar talk hasn't rendered this one painfully obvious, then uh, then I don't know what. Um, the answer, of course, is the year. Its twelve branches are the twelve months, whose four nests are the four weeks in a month, in which you find the seven birds, which are the seven days of the week. For next episode, uh, instead of a riddle, we'll do another medieval mystery word. Our word this time is going to be cruft. C-R-U-F-T. Cruft. Uh, if you're a coder or software developer or web designer, cruft is probably in your vocabulary. But we're going to find out more about medieval cruft and what it meant. Uh, if you have any guesses, you can share them in the usual places. Uh, you can find and follow us on Twitter, at MDT Podcast. You can leave comments and find more information about the show at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. And you can email thoughts, queries, or corrections straight to me at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. We will be back more promptly, I promise, in two weeks with a brand new episode featuring an actual medieval text rather than some monstrosity of my own creation. Until then, thanks for your patience, and thanks for listening.